Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatroc. And we've been reading Finding Home by Philippe de Lamatroc, and we're almost finished with it. This is the sequel to Alien Us, which is a Star Trek Enterprise story written by Philippe de Lamatroc, that pen name of mine. And you can hear that one in all of season six. All 30 episodes are the 30 chapters of Alien Us. And now we're reading the sequel, which started right after the, be the end of Alien Us, story-wise. <laughs> it took six years after finishing Alien Us before I found the start to Finding Home. Um, Finding Home will be 17 chapters with an epilogue, and we are on chapter 16. And I want to get into that. Okay, let's get going. I just want to give a warning before I go ahead and read chapter 16. At the last scene, there will be a description of, let's call it self-release. If that is a bit too squicky for you, I will leave a timestamp in the description where you can pause or stop the recording and then hear the paragraph after so you don't hear the paragraph with that description. It is not terribly detailed, it is kind of vague, but it is there. All right, now you've been warned, let's read. Star Trek Enterprise, Finding Home, by Philippe de la Matroc. Sequel to Alien Us, Chapter 16. Earth. Finally, the ship was docked. Hoshi packed her bag, checking it three times over. Still, she couldn't go to the shuttle bay or call out until the okay was given. The captain was ferrying the admiral and the ambassador down to the planet now. He promised to take her straight to Malcolm when he got back and the time limit was reached. She had been fidgeting since the two had come aboard. Several times she found herself outside Ma Malcolm's quarters, about to barge in on the ambassador. But he was moved out now. She zipped up her bag, left it on her bed, and headed out to the corridor. It didn't take long to get to Malcolm's quarters, but she hesitated at the door, just in case. But the ambassador had gone with the captain. He wouldn't be there. She keyed open the door and stepped inside. She stood there just inside the door, trying to determine what the ambassador had changed during his stay. Malcolm's books were still there on, the, on his shelf. Nothing looked out of place. She sat on the bed, then lifted the pillow. But it didn't smell like Malcolm anymore. Tears welled up in her eyes. She hadn't meant to start crying. It was as if a stranger had erased Malcolm's essence. Besides the books, Malcolm didn't have any mementos to make the space his own. Take them away, and this was anyone's quarters. He wasn't here. She replaced the pillow and left. Instead of going back to her quarters, she turned the other way and hit the chime on Trip's door. It opened. Hey, Hosh. I was just packing. Have you been crying? He waved her in and wrapped his arms around her. We're home now. Just a little bit longer and you can call your folks. I know, she said through sniffles as they parted. She sat beside his bag on the bed. I was in his quarters. And it was almost like he was never there. Did the ambassador mess it up? He put some shirts into his bag. She shook her head. I know it doesn't make sense. Malcolm didn't decorate. Well, now he has a whole apartment in London, Tripp said. It's full of his sister's things, but you'll have to help him make it homey. 
A nagging thought had been pushing through her mind since the ship had docked and she hadn't heard from Malcolm. She'd packed and repacked to push it away, but it came rushing forward now. What if, she began, what if the therapy's been good and he doesn't need me, doesn't love me anymore? Tripp stopped and sat beside her on the bed. Hoshi, when we found him in the sand, the one thing he said was your name. When he woke up in the hospital, he was upset that he couldn't reach you. Trevon may be a great therapist, but he's no replacement for you. It's only been a few months. He's not going to have forgotten you or stopped loving you. I don't hear him, she cried. He put his arm around her and squeezed. He probably doesn't know we're here, he reasoned, and we don't know if he can reach orbit with it anyway. You know, maybe T'Pol could help you calm your nerves until it's time. Should I ask her? Hoshi nodded, knowing he was right about all of it. She couldn't change Malcolm's condition by worrying. Hey, T'Pol, Hoshi's here and needs some help with the waiting. I'll be right there. The wind was really starting to whip. Malcolm raised his pole higher until it clicked. Opposite him, Dad was doing the same. They had two more to go to cover the space between the house and the shed where all the controls were. It had taken a lot of work in the last week or so. Miguel had even brought Owen to help. The boy had thought it fun to install the nodes on the roof. Mom moved the garden chairs to the space between the poles. Malcolm moved to his last pole. Dad finished his just before Malcolm did. I think we're all set. Admiral Isu should be here before Griselda hits us hard, Malcolm told him, any minute now. As if on cue, a flitter touched down, deposited two individuals, and left again. Isu waved and started over. Good to finally meet you, Lieutenant. Looks like you've been busy. Malcolm offered a smile, more interesting than physical therapy. He then introduced the Tuckers. This is Admiral Isu, Starfleet R&D. The Admiral shook hands with both of them. This is my aide, Commander Abimbola. She shook Malcolm's hand. You confident this will stand up to a hurricane? No, Malcolm told her honestly, but thankfully Griselda has been downgraded to a tropical storm, and I am confident it can stand up to that. He offered them seats, then went to the shed to activate the force field. He caught sight of the mama cat poking her head up from one of the crates in the back. He was glad to know she was safe. He flipped the switch, and the sound of the wind died down. Outside was a soft white glow and a canopy overhead and all the way to the ground between the poles. Through it, he could see the trees whipping and rain starting to fall. The canopy covered both buildings as well, but was close to both structures. Impressive, Isu said. I only feel a slight breeze now. Leaves and twigs started to break off, and the rain came down harder beyond the barrier. Some small branches hit the barrier, then fell to the ground. It's an EM field, Malcolm explained. Not strong enough for phase cannons or torpedoes, but it should be fine for flying debris. It's more of a proof of concept. I got it to shape around the house, even curve around a cylinder. Isu smiled. So, if we can find the right medium for proper shielding, you've got to start on bending it around the hull of a ship. Mom brought out a tray of laminate and passed glasses around. It may take a while for the storm to pass over. Might as well be comfortable. Thank you, Abimbola offered, taking a glass. How did you go from one plane, four corners, to this? I got each node to emit the field in 360 degrees. It fanned out like an umbrella, and the edges are attracted to each other. The trees were swaying and whipping back and forth. Small branches started to fall, and the rain came down in sheets, but not a drop came through the barrier. It ran down the sides in cascades. 
May I see your calculations? the aide asked. Of course, Malcolm replied. I'm no engineer, so they may seem a bit rudimentary to you. He waved her toward the shed and joined her there. He gave her the pad with his calculations. You can learn engineering terms and graphing and all that. You obviously have a knack for mathematics. Two semesters tops. She looked at his cylinder. That is, if you want to stay. It's tempting, Malcolm admitted. And I am considering it. But I'm not alone. I love someone. I want to be with her, here or there. She started drawing some diagrams on the pad, and they worked out the tech specs together. By the time they were finished, the storm was dying down. It even blocked the rain, Isu exclaimed. The ground is still dry. I'm very impressed. Malcolm was relieved and proud. He'd protected his new family's home and property and moved Starfleet science just a little closer to deflector shields. T'Pol had managed to help her relax enough to wait the last few hours until the captain called to say they could now contact their families and request shore leave. Hoshi had excused herself from T'Pol's quarters to call her parents from her own. She explained to them briefly her concerns for Malcolm and told them she needed to see him before coming home. They were disappointed, but were otherwise supportive. They even suggested she bring him with her when she did come home. They caught up some more as Hoshi waited for the captain to return. The door chimed and Hoshi said her goodbyes. She opened the door and was so happy to see Trip and the captain she might have hugged the latter. All ready to go? he asked. Yes, sir. She retrieved her bag from the, her bed, and they all went to the shuttle bay. There was a big storm in the area, Tripp said. We had to wait until it passed. I had a good talk with my parents, she told him. Have you called yours? Yeah, but they had some company over, so Mom couldn't talk. We may be crashing some sort of party. Malcolm and a party? Our Captain Archer asked. And during a storm, the weakened leftovers of a hurricane? Tripp chuckled. <laughs> Hmm, it was quiet there, but no, Mom said she hoped she'd see me soon, and that was that. Maybe the storm missed them, Hoshi suggested from her seat behind the captain. Well, it covered most of Mississippi, so I don't think that's the case. Did she sound worried about it at all? Tripp shook his head. Not a bit. They descended below the clouds, and Hoshi felt her body begin to tense in excitement and worry. This was it. They'd finally find out how Malcolm had fared since Tripp left. She saw Tripp's leg was bouncing, so she thought maybe he felt the same. They passed over the wide swath of destroyed land from the Zindi weapon. It was greener now with grass and trees. The sides were more sloped now, though the top edges were shored up to keep them from sliding into the valley far below. Tripp had told her about the brain cancers. It was still a dangerous area. There were several buildings in some state of construction, but all construction had been halted. Beyond that were cities and neighborhoods, highways, rivers, and lakes. Tripp took the controls and guided the shuttle pod to his parents' neighborhood. As they landed in the yard, there were several people in the street talking and gesturing toward the house. Hoshi didn't care about that. She was already up, waiting for the door to open. Hoshi? she heard, and her heart nearly exploded. The door opened, and she leapt out. The Admiral was congratulating Malcolm. I know you want to return to Enterprise, Isu said, but at R&D you can protect all the ships. He made a good case. If they found the right medium for shielding the ships, they could now find a way to wrap it around the ships. Tripp had pointed out that R&D did more than make sonic showers. They developed the offensive and defensive capabilities for all of Starfleet, from hand weapons to planetary defenses. 
But he didn't want to live without Hoshi, and he didn't know if she would be willing to leave the ship. With that thought, he heard another ship landing, something larger than a flitter. Malcolm watched it land and recognized it as one of Enterprise's. They were back. Oh, he hoped she was on it. His heart, their heart, began to pound, in a good way. Hoshi? He tried. She didn't answer, but the door opened and there she was. Um, excuse me, Admiral, Malcolm said without even looking back at him. He stepped toward her and she ran to him. He scooped her up in his arms, swinging her around. It was a dream come true. When he set her back down, he realized she hadn't limped during her run. Didn't I promise to sweep you off your feet? She was crying, but she chuckled. <laughs> you did. She touched his face, his hands, his heart. You're okay, she asked aloud. Much better now that you're here. He felt warm and excited. She was there in his arms, and he could hold her now unlike before. She looked around at the admiral, the poles, the ground. What's going on? Just something to work my mind as well as my hands, he explained. Ian Barrier, like we used with the crystalline entity, but shaped around the house and shed, and the space between. The grass is even dry. That it was, but it hardly mattered now. Hoshi, you were right. I couldn't have managed on my own. I needed my therapist. I needed this family, my new family. She replied the same way. Your parents? He smiled and looked over to where Tripp was hugging his parents and the captain was greeting the admiral. Those are my parents over there. I definitely couldn't heal what the others did without them. How have you been? A nervous wreck? She hugged him tightly again. I nearly yelled at an admiral. I couldn't play well with others. Flox has been a great help with the orcs, and Tripp has been so supportive as I worried myself over you. When he left, Malcolm said, he had reason to worry. I was lost. Flashbacks, hallucinations. I'm sorry about your sister, she offered, touching his chest. I feel her heartbeat. Our heartbeat, he corrected. It was something she said in the recorded message. Don't grieve so hard you break our heart, hers and mine. She also said I'd need it to love you. He kissed her forehead, and I do. I love you. Then he chuckled. <laughs> Though I do have another lady in my life, would you like to meet her? Hoshi was thrilled for a loop. He loved her, but he had someone else. She was confused and couldn't manage to object as he took her hand and led her into the house. He took her to the living room, and she couldn't see anyone. There were a couple of small cats on the sofa, but no people. The calico is Travon's, he said. The couple he stays with are allergic, so she lives here for now. The other is my Lilibet. The confusion and hurt fell away in the wake of relief and the utter cuteness of the two cats curled up together. They're adorable. They were born in the shed, he told her. Father never let us have a pet. Mom and Dad were more amenable. Hoshi hugged him from the side. You can't take her on the ship. Malcolm sighed. I don't know that I'll be going back to the ship. We have a lot to talk about, but not now. Let's just be happy to be together first. She nodded and they sat down on the sofa together. The kittens woke up and stretched, then made their way to both of their laps, only to plop down again. They started cleaning themselves. Tripp didn't know how right he'd been. Malcolm was physically well and emotionally, psychologically better. 
He was even working on a new invention. That was Admiral Isu and his aide out there from Starfleet R&D. It's an option. An option. That's what he'd meant. He had options. Hoshi hadn't even tried to think of options. She had to stay on Enterprise when he was sent back to Earth. But the thought of him having options didn't bother her. She could now imagine some options for herself. She could go back to teaching. She could work full-time on the UT. She wouldn't have to sit on the bridge and face dangerous missions. What are you thinking? he asked in her mind. Of options, she replied, reaching for the kitten in her lap. Do you not want to return to Enterprise? It's not that I don't. I don't know if I don't or if I do. I know I'd miss it, some of it, but there are some things I think maybe I wouldn't miss. She nodded, feeling the same. Even before Tripp had returned to the ship, she'd felt uncomfortable on the bridge. She couldn't even stand to be in sickbay. She'd kept mostly to herself, even as she was getting physically better. The people, she told him. I'd miss the people. Exactly, he said out loud. Hoshi kept it nonverbal. Do you still dream of them? Yes, he responded in kind. I admit I sometimes still see one out of the corner of my eye. I know they can't really be here. Honestly, we've only started getting back to my time in Jiren. Trevon and I have spent most of the time unraveling other traumas. When Triff left, it was way worse. The orcs, my father, my sister, the water, all running together, bleeding into one another. I didn't know where I was or when. I'd see them walking down the hallway while my father berated me from the corner. If Trevon wasn't also a therapist, I'm not sure I would be better today. I couldn't even talk to him this way. I could only show him my memories when he asked it of me. And she knew what he'd asked. The drowning. She felt him nod against her head. That and a month after when father tried to take me out waiting and I ran from him. It got worse, but I think Tripp needs to hear that too. Most of my therapy hasn't been about Sharu either, she confessed audibly. It was being left there when you were sent here. Then it was what Tripp reported, and I know he sugarcoated it for me. He kissed the top of her head. I am sorry about that. If Tripp had been able to stay longer, he could perhaps have given you more hope. He took a deep breath. I couldn't, at the time, do anything different. I had no control. I thought I was losing my mind. Lilibet, his kitten, leaned into him and licked his chin. Both kittens were purring. Hoshi stroked the cat in her lap. Tripp kept telling me you'd probably be fine after months of therapy and being with his family. My family now, he corrected. He offered to share. And I meant it. They looked up to see Tripp in the doorway to the kitchen. I was wondering where you two disappeared to. He sat across from them in one of the chairs. Dad told me the cat outside finally had her kittens, and I could see two of them in the house. Didn't peg you for a cat person, Mal. Maddie and I always wanted one, Malcolm told him. We weren't allowed. Tripp was incredibly relieved to see that all his positive protestations to Hoshi had proved right. Malcolm was infinitely better than the day he had had to leave. Mom and Dad were very proud of his good showing with Admiral Isu. Thank you for protecting the house from a hurricane, by the way. Malcolm's eyebrows lowered. You did see the other houses in the neighborhood fared nearly as well. It wasn't a hurricane anymore. Still, 
Tripp said, chuckling. Admiral Isu is very pleased. He said to keep him up to date on your plans. He and his aide are heading back to R&D with your notes, and those kittens look mighty comfortable, so I won't bother them now. I'll leave you two to catch up. He started to rise. Stay. Tripp sat back down and gave Malcolm his full attention. Hoshi already knows what happened when I was twelve. Malcolm took a breath and stroked the kitten in his lap, a Siamese-looking medium hair. That's the start of all things. In short, I saved a younger boy from some bullies who beat me up and pushed my head into a fountain until I drowned. Tripp had expected it was something his parents had done, not something as tragic and life-threatening as that. Malcolm went on. That's how I became aquaphobic. That meant I couldn't fathom being in the Navy. And that was a very big problem for my parents, especially my father. Tripp could hear the purrs from across the room. It's like It was like they were therapy cats. Reed men have been Navy men for generations. I broke tradition. A horrible betrayal in my father's eyes. He tried to help me remember that I could swim and thus overcome the aquaphobia by successively more severe methods. First, it was taking me waiting. I ran from him. I missed meals because they were by the lake, or I was left in an anchored boat with no oars. But I couldn't swim to shore. The last one, I was 14. I didn't even realize he'd done it. The kitten chirped, and he remembered to stroke her. He was being honored out on a pier. There was quite a crowd. I was bumped and fell off the pier. I was told it was because of my clumsiness. Malcolm was a lot of things, but Tripp wouldn't describe him as clumsy. A sailor pulled me out of the water. Within a week, we'd moved to Malaysia. My father never tried to make me swim again. He never hit me. But my parents blamed me for my father having to resign his commission and for having to move. It was because of my behavior. And all the love and affection I'd felt dwindling from the time before my drowning was gone. I was 14. That was bonkers. Tripp couldn't understand parents who could put tradition over their child's well-being. Trevon helped me see that it wasn't true. My father turned sharply, for no other reason than to bump me. The pier was slick from rain that morning, and Mother had insisted I wear these new shoes with questionable traction. He knocked me into the water. He was called out on it by the sailor. An inquest found him guilty. They gave him a choice, resign or be drummed out of the service. Children's Services started an investigation, so he moved us to Malaysia, which had no extradition agreement with Britain. Malcolm had said all that relatively calmly, but Tripp was furious on his behalf. Malcolm scoffed, and I kept hoping that one day he'd relent and be proud of me. They called Madeline every day after she fell ill. Mother fawned over her enough that she felt it was suffocating, but she saw through them, knew what they thought of me. She wanted to give me her heart. Our heart. He took another breath, but this time it shook. <sighs> and you gave me a family when I hadn't had one since I was 14. Tripp felt his eyes well up. Happy too. <laughs> it was kind of her idea, he said, gesturing to Hoshi. She made me promise not to leave you where you can't heal. He looked at the kittens curled in both of their laps. And who might these two be? Lilibet, Hoshi replied, pointing to the Siamese-looking one in, on Malcolm's lap. She's Malcolm's. Cena here belongs to Trevon. Oh, there's something else I have to thank you for, Malcolm said. The shower. A shower? Cena jumped down from Hoshi's lap and rubbed on Tripp's legs. Sonic, 
Chip explained as he bent to pet the cat, something they were working on at R&D. I got them to let Malcolm beta test it. She made a show of sniffing Malcolm's chest. Well, he smells good, so it must work. Malcolm smiled. I, um, have a difficult relationship with water now. I thought you might, Tripp replied quietly. Glad it helped. How long until Enterprise leaves again? Malcolm asked. Lilibet left his lap then and pounced on Cena, which sent them both careening around the living room. Tripp shrugged, laughing at the kittens. Not sure. She could use some repair, maybe some upgrades, but neither of you need to worry about rushing back. The captain wants Hoshi to have as much time as she needs with you and her family. Trevon didn't miss the large shuttle pod sitting in the front lawn of the Tucker's house. Perhaps Malcolm's Hoshi had returned. He was anxious to beat her. Elaine had pointed out that Malcolm was inside the house, so he let himself in from the back door and walked through the kitchen to where he heard three voices— Trips he recognized, as he did Malcolm's, but yes, there was a woman's voice as well. He knocked on the doorframe to get their attention. I take it our session is cancelled for the day. He smiled to show it was not a problem. Cena came to him and rubbed herself on his leg, though for a very happy reason. Malcolm looked at Hoshi as she leaned into his side. We have a lot of catching up to do. Tripp started to get up, but Trevon waved him down. That you do, and there's no reason we can't take a hiatus for a few weeks. You can always reach me if you need my help. I take it the demonstration went well. Malcolm smiled. It did. No rain, no debris, even less wind. How did you fare with the storm? Trevon laughed. <laughs> I found it quite exciting. It reminded me of our vacations on the coast when I was a child. Cena stretched her paws to his knees, so he bent to give her a scratch on the chin. There's my little predator. He picked her up and she nestled in his arms. But where are my manners? I've, of course, met Malcolm and Tripp, so you must be Anson Hoshi Sato. It is my pleasure to meet you. I'm Dr. Koi Travon, Malcolm's therapist. I gathered as much, she told him. Thank you for helping him. It has been a pleasure. I hope you are well. She nodded. A lot better now that we're home. Will you see your family in Japan? Cena squirmed, so he let her jump down. That movement got Lily into a playful mood, and she ran to chase Cena. The two of them went, went tearing down the hall. Hoshi chuckled at their antics. <laughs> Eventually, I spoke with them from the ship. I'll stay with Malcolm for a while first. Well, we're not all going to fit on the couch, Trip said. I do happen to have a flat in London I haven't seen, Malcolm replied. It will take some going through. Madeline left me everything. Trevon remembered. Tripp apparently did as well. Maybe the captain and I can drop you two off there. Another man joined Trevon in the doorway. He could hear the tuckers in the kitchen. The captain can, the man said. Tripp, you can stay with your folks for a bit. He turned to Trevon. Captain Jonathan Archer. He offered his hand. Trevon took it and shook it briefly. Dr. Coy Trevon. He turned his attention back to Malcolm. And a hiatus will allow me to get back to San Francisco with my little monster. That brought an eyebrow raised to the captain's face until the two kittens raced back into the living room. Probably should have left Porthos outside. Trevon looked down and saw there was another animal, colored not unlike Cena, behind Archer's legs. Ah, I have not yet met a canine. It appears to be intimidated. Archer sighed. Well, he's used to being the only animal on the ship. Malcolm started to rise. Good to see you, Captain. I should go pack, then Tripp can have his room back. He turned to Tripp. Mind if I leave Lily here with you? Tripp was still mesmerized by the kitten's antics. Not at all. 
You know your supplies? Tripp asked telepathically as he rose and offered Hoshi his hand. Yes, carrier, cat box, litter, food, toys, things to scratch and climb. It won't take long, Malcolm told Hoshi. I don't have much here. I don't either, she admitted as they left for the bedroom. Left my bag in the shuttle pod. Well, Trevon said, I've got some purchases to make. I'll be back to collect Cena. Good to see you again, Trip, and to meet you as well, Captain. Likewise, Archer offered. Thank you for what you've done for him. Trevon just nodded and turned back to the kitchen and the door beyond. It was late when they arrived in London. Hoshi watched as Malcolm stood in the living room area and just took in the room. This was where his sister had lived. It was fully furnished, she could see. There was a kitchenette off to one side with bar stools up to a counter rather than a table. The appliances in the kitchen were smaller than what she saw in America, but about the same as those she had in Japan. Are you all right? He nodded. It's just, well, like seeing what she saw when she lived here. He walked to the bedroom and she joined him. They opened the wardrobe to find it full of women's clothes and shoes. The dresser held makeup and a jewelry box. There was a desk with a computer, pads, and architecture books. The bed was larger than a twin, but not as large as a full. We'll need a new bed, Malcolm said, having similar thoughts. We can pack most of this up for charity, unless you'd like something. She looked through some of the clothes in the wardrobe. I liked your sister when I spoke to her before, but I don't think our styles match. She did have a few nice scarves, though. Are you sure? I can't use them, he told her. Should go to someone who can. There was a chime at the door. Malcolm had ordered dinner sent up, so he went to the door and opened it. But he froze there, speechless. Hoshi joined him and saw it was not a delivery of their dinner. Instead, it was a dour woman with pursed lips. Mother, Malcolm finally said. There was no affection in the word, nor animosity. Is father with you? She rang her hands on the handle of her handbag. May I come in, Malcolm? Her tone was sweet and somewhat apologetic. Hoshi let him make the choice. She felt herself heat up in anger. Malcolm stepped back a few feet. Hoshi stepped to the side. Mrs. Reed walked in far enough for Hoshi to close the door behind her. Have you been camping out, waiting for me to show up? Malcolm asked. Mrs. Reed didn't answer, but looked at Hoshi. Are you going to introduce us? No, Malcolm replied, and Hoshi kept her tongue. No, because you are of no consequence, and she will likely never see you again, as I will never see you again. What do you want? She appeared hurt by the words. I have always loved you, Malcolm. Just stop. It was the first time he'd raised his voice or shown any emotion in the exchange. Not once did you defend me, even when father wasn't around, and I know you were in on it as you made me wear those inappropriate shoes. Was that love when you told them to take me off the support keeping me alive, when you didn't even want to speak to me after I didn't die? He took a deep breath and collected himself. However, Madeline was your daughter. You may choose three items from her belongings as keepsakes. You should pick a few extra, because I will have veto power over all of your choices. You have 15 minutes. Be quick. I'll go with her and keep an eye on her, Hoshi offered. She retreated to the bedroom with Mrs. Reed as the door chimed again. Probably dinner, she thought. I'm sorry you had to witness that cruelty, the woman said to her. Hoshi glared at her. I'm on his side. You and your husband have been cruel to him for years. I wouldn't have even let you in the room. Time is wasting. 
Mrs. Reed gave up trying to win her sympathies. She went to Madeline's jewelry box and took out a necklace and matching bracelet. She chose a scarf from the wardrobe, an architecture book, and two photographs from an album on the dresser. Hoshi made sure she didn't put any in her handbag by taking the items herself back to the other room. She laid them out on the counter where Malcolm had placed their dinner. "'Do you want any of these?' he asked her telepathically. Hoshi examined the jewelry. She'd seen nicer sets in the jewelry box. These probably meant something sentimental to Mrs. Reed. The scarf, though, was quite lovely. Scarf. He faced his mother. Which three do you choose? She pointed to the jewelry, the scarf, and a photo of Madeline and her parents at dinner somewhere. You may have the jewelry and a photo. They're a set, Mrs. Reed argued and reached for the second photo. Malcolm pulled it away. I see three items. Necklace, bracelet, and photo. You may take those or none at all. Mrs. Reed pursed her lips and slipped the jewelry and photo into her handbag. She walked toward the door. Hoshi was ready to open it for her. Forget this address, Malcolm called to her. I'll have management bar you and father from returning. She huffed and Hoshi opened the door to allow her to leave. Are you all right? She found him with his head in his hands at the counter. Been better. Do you think I was too... not one bit... She turned him to her and took his hands, which were trembling. I would have cussed her out in so many languages. He offered her a brief smile. I could have let her take all of it. Save us the trouble of sorting it. Better it goes to people in need than a storeroom in Malaysia, she told him. She looked at the second picture. It was of the whole family, including Malcolm. The children were quite young, probably younger than twelve. I can't allow her to come again. She might bring him along. Hoshi nodded. You can ask management to borrow them, like you said. You could sell the flat and not worry about it. Malcolm shook his head. I like the idea of having a place of my own, our own, and being back in England. First thing in the morning, we'll talk to management. She kissed him. Then you can show me some of the sights of London, the ones where all the tourists go. Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square, the Tower. He chuckled. <laughs> they do still have double-deckered bus tours. Perfect! She let go to open the warm box beside him. I don't know about you, but I'm starving. Malcolm slipped out of bed while Hoshi was still sleeping. They'd pretty much just crashed after dinner and they knew they'd have to align with Greenwich Mean Time to catch the tour bus. He grabbed some clothes from his bag and a washcloth and a towel from the linen closet and made his way to the kitchen. There was no sonic shower in the flat, and he couldn't bear taking a shower. He undressed and used the rag to wash himself and the towel to dry. As he dressed, he thought about Madeline's life here. He imagined her returning from a day at work, sitting on the couch there, or fixing her dinner in the kitchen she, he was standing in. She'd eaten on the dishes in the cabinets, slept on the bed he and Hoshi had shared, dressed from her wardrobe. He returned to the bedroom and looked around. He recognized the desk where she'd recorded her journal to him. He used the terminal there to order a new bed. There were things he'd hoped to do with Hoshi that he couldn't imagine doing in the bed he, his sister had slept in. Besides, it was a bit small for the two of them, though he hadn't minded the closeness as they lay down. Hoshi stretched and woke. She seemed startled for a moment, but then calmed when she saw him. He understood. He'd had a moment when he woke up as well. The nightmares had caused him to forget where he was until the morning light through the window had shone on the furniture. Good morning, she offered. He bent over and kissed her as she sat up. Morning. Shall I order breakfast? 
She kissed him more deeply. We could go back to bed. He gently took her arms from his shoulders. Not if you want to catch your bus. Right. She turned and stood up. She paused before she entered the bathroom. I'm going to take a shower. Do you need to go in the other room? He nodded. He didn't want to hear the water running. I'll get breakfast. He put in his breakfast order for delivery in the next quarter of an hour. That gave them time to eat and still catch the bus downtown. As he waited, he called down to building management and asked them if they could block his parents. They kept a no-admittance list. All they required was a picture of both of them. Malcolm retrieved Madeline's photo album from the bedroom and found a recent photo of the three of them. He scanned it and sent it to management. Hoshi emerged from the bedroom, showered and dressed for a day of being a tourist. Just as the door chimed, he opened the door and tipped the delivery person. You really need to go grocery shopping, she said. Malcolm put the box on the kitchen counter and opened it. A traditional English breakfast, scones and jam. He put a pat of butter on one and then spread strawberry jam on top. But yes, there are a few things we'll need to shop for. Cat things, for one. Hoshi smiled as she took a scone from for herself. Did you sleep all right? Nightmares as usual, he replied. You? Yeah, those aside, the bed was comfortable, as was the companionship. She skipped the butter and went right to jam. It was rather cozy, Malcolm agreed. I'd like to switch out the bed, get something a little bigger. How about the decor? He waved a hand toward the living room window. Do we like it as it is, or do we want to change it? Hoshi turned to look around. It's nice enough, she said, and it says England to me. Madeline had good taste. So everything non-gendered can stay, Malcolm decided. Dishes, pots and pans, drapery and furnishings, except the bed. You can have anything of her clothing and jewelry that you like. The rest will go to charity. Sounds good. What time is the bus? Malcolm finished his scone and washed it down with some coffee. We'll need to leave in about ten minutes. They had to do a bit of running, but they made the bus and found seats on the top deck. While Hoshi listened to the tour guide, Malcolm researched a charity to take Madeline's things. He found one to take the bed that evening and another for the clothes and jewelry tomorrow afternoon. When the bus stopped, he got off with her and gave her his whole attention, telling her what he knew of the history of the place or interesting stories he'd heard as a child. They stopped for lunch at a cafe. After lunch, Malcolm ordered dessert. It came a few minutes later. Pineapple cake. A la mode. Hoshi smiled. It hasn't quite been a year. You did say maybe a year, he replied. You were right, though I can't recall any trip jokes right now. They tucked in and he got an idea. It might be rushing things, but it felt like they'd loved each other for years. And he didn't want to spend his life without her. He didn't have a ring, yet. He took her hand as she took the last bite, but the bus came back and they had to catch it if they wanted to see the tower. They arrived back at the flat with quite a few purchases. They'd had to borrow a cart from downstairs. They had groceries for the next week or so. Bedding for the new bed Malcolm had ordered during that morning, and supplies for Lily when she would come to visit. The bed arrived while Hoshi was making enchiladas for dinner. She let Malcolm deal with the bed. They planned to do some sorting after dinner. As the enchiladas came out of the oven, Malcolm emerged from the bedroom. All set for tonight. She was glad he'd ordered a new bed. It had seemed awkward to know she was sleeping in his sister's bed. There were certain things she didn't want to do in that bed. After dinner, she chose some jewelry and a couple more scarves. Malcolm decided on some photos, Madeline's scout badges, and some of the architecture books. They put everything else in the bags from the shopping and set them on the living room floor in front of the big window. She and Malcolm hung their clothes in the wardrobe and flopped back on the new bed. Hoshi felt tired in a good way. She felt at home.
at a home. She had several now, Enterprise, her parents' home in Japan, and now this flat, and maybe one more. If they left Enterprise and worked at Starfleet headquarters, they'd need housing nearby. Hoshi, he began, taking her hand. I've been trying th to think of a grand romantic way to do this. He sat up and pulled her with him. Then he knelt in front of her on the floor. But I just can't wait anymore. He pulled a small box from his pocket and Hoshi's heart be started to beat. Will you marry me? In the box was a beautiful diamond ring. She didn't know when he bought it. Maybe when he'd excused himself from the pet shop for only ten minutes. She thought he had had to use the restroom. Of course, she told him, pulling him back onto the bed as she lay back again. I was already planning out base housing. She kissed him deeply, feeling warm all over. She, he put the ring on her finger, and they lost themselves in each other's arms. She wanted him. She needed him. She started to remove his shirt, and he nearly ripped it off. She reached for his pants, and he froze, and he fell back onto the floor with a stricken expression. Malcolm? She sat up and dropped to her knees in front of him. What is it? He tucked his knees to his chest and rocked. Damn, he whispered like a sob. The orcs. She had known when the orcs were putting things inside her. She understood what they said to each other, and her imagination had filled in what her body couldn't feel. The idea of Malcolm inside her was exciting, not fearful. But Malcolm had felt what the orcs did to him. Twice. And it broke him. She pulled the blanket from the bed and wrapped it around him, rubbing his back. It's okay. We don't have to. We can just be together. We have time. He didn't lift his head. I'm sorry, he whispered. She put her arms around him and kissed the top of his head. I love you, Malcolm Reed. All of you. We'll work it out. Malcolm felt deflated the next day. She hadn't held it against him, but he felt he'd let her down. He should be happy. She'd agreed to marry him. But it was also the day his sister's things were taken away. They had toast for breakfast together, then Hoshi said she was going to take a walk. He let her go by herself as he just wallowed on the couch. Fun wallow day. It was too early to call Travon. There was an eight-hour time difference. He'd still be asleep. She was gone maybe an hour. He hadn't really counted. Part of him had imagined she'd left for Japan. But she did return, and she had a little shopping bag in her arms. She walked straight to the linen closet, then handed him a dish towel. She leaned over him and whispered, I've had an idea. Turn on tactile. She kissed him on the cheek and then went to the bedroom. Malcolm had no idea what the towel was for, but he imagined their console and turned tactile up as high as it would go. Then he waited. It started as a buzzing in his groin, but it grew into sensations he'd never felt before. He realized then what the towel was for. He had a brief moment to remember that women had thousands more nerves than he did before he lost all rational thought. His trousers became tight and he had to pull them down. He was getting aroused, but her arousal overrode his. He was becoming erect and he hadn't even had to use his own hands. He could only see the ceiling, only feel the muscles in his legs tensing with hers. He had only just pulled the towel to him when he couldn't hold it any longer. She kept going, though, and he felt every minute of it. By the time she climaxed, he wasn't sure he could even move. He was exhausted. Still, he felt little pulses in his groin. Did that help? Her voice asked. He had no words. Uh-huh. 
was the best he could manage. Any orcs? No orcs. Next time you help me. He nodded, knowing she couldn't see him. He wiped himself off and pulled his trousers back up. He needed water. He had to turn tactile off just to stand. He stumbled to the kitchen, pouring himself a glass and drained it. His hand shook. He was done wallowing. Okay, there was chapter 16. It is... uh, the second to last episode of the whole story. And Hoshi and Malcolm are back together again. And then this this chapter had to just kind of do a lot of things. It had to move things along. It's not the most uh, momentous chapter, though it has some moments. Um, It has Trip telling, or excuse me, Malcolm telling Trip what happened when he was 12 and what happened with his parents. Um... That is pretty big. I mean, Ho- Trip is his brother now, and you know he 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 wouldn't have asked, but he told them or told him. Um, another momentous thing was that his mother came to the door in London, and that that <sighs> lost my word. That conversation, that re- it's not reaction. It's um well, it's an action together. But anyway, anyway. Interaction. Okay. That interaction was not very forgiving. But then if you really pay attention to Mrs. Reed's words and actions, she was being a bit pushy and duplicitive. Um, she came to the door, tried to act all sweet, just tried to act like nothing was wrong. You're going to introduce us? And when Malcolm um, told her no, because she wasn't of any consequence, then she tried the, I have always loved you, Malcolm. But if that's true, she hadn't shown it. He ha- she hadn't done love as a verb since he was 14. And she had made sure he wore those inappropriate shoes for that final thing at the pier. So... No, (laughs) it's hard to believe that she loved him because she didn't show it. And this is all told from Hoshi's point of view. And Hoshi lets Malcolm deal with it and she's on his side. And the mother even tries to, you know, triangulate to take, make, have Hoshi take her side. I'm sorry you had to see that cruelty, you know? She was, she was trying stuff and then Hoshi shut it down and she made sure to, um, take the things that Mrs. Reed wanted in her hands back to the counter, not because, you know, the mother might've tried to hide a few in her handbag and, and all that. By the way, when she offered to go with the mother to, with, you know, the other room, she did that telepathically. The mother didn't hear that. Again, it was a case of italics that you can't hear in uh, audible speech. So, there was a lot of that, by the way. So, you might want to um, 
I hoped you, <laughs> I hoped you went to an archive of our own and read along with it because it would make it easier to tell what was telepathic and what was not. There were some tags, but not every time. It is really visual with uh, the telepathy. All right, and then the last momentous thing, well, the last two momentous things was when they started to do what two people in love might do when they got a new bed and had just agreed to marry each other. But when Hoshi got to taking, you know, getting to Malcolm's pants and thus his groin, he had a flashback. And for him, it shut down everything. He wasn't ready to go anymore. He, no, he was just sickened. So he couldn't continue. But she wasn't judgy about it. She wasn't disappointed. She understood because she had seen what happened to him while she didn't watch them collect the semen. She, she was there afterwards. And saw what it did to him. So she reassured him. And then she goes out the next day. And this is from Malcolm's point of view. And he is wallowing. And he is thinking all the, you know, the worst. She's left him. She's gone to Japan <laughs> over this issue. Um, but it hasn't. She's been gone. She's gone an hour. And then she comes back with a little bag. Well, in case you hadn't caught on, she bought a little something for her. A toy, shall we say. And she told Malcolm to go into, you know, to turn on tactile. She went into the bedroom and she used her toy. And then we have a paragraph where Malcolm feels what a woman feels. Which he can do because of that tactile thing. He can feel what she feels. And so Malcolm got to feel what no cis male has ever felt before there are trans men who may have felt it before but cis men they haven't and considering that women do have thousands more nerve endings in their genitals shall we say than men do in their genitals it's got to be overwhelming. <laughs> but he was also feeling what he feels, so he's, he's got both. <laughs> Blew his mind. <laughs> so much that he couldn't, it just took everything out of him. He was exhausted. He had to turn it off so he could stand to get some water. <laughs> That's what it was. Um, I had originally thought that that would be an idea from Travon. Um, after he talked to, the, to him, you know, after the eight-hour time difference... But it made the whole, you know, when I wrote it out, it made the whole, all of it kind of clunky. Um, by the way, this whole chapter was written in my co composition book, but it was very much, I think it was like chapter 15 too. It was very surfacey. 15 was closer to what it became, but in chapter 16 in the composition book, just let me know what the sequence of events was pretty much. This happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. I didn't have to type it up exactly like it was in the book. And in the book, it, in the in the composition book, it was Trevon who suggests it. You know, that Malcolm has, and his, his abilities give him a, a, a gift that may help to 
bypass his trauma reaction. And, um, but in the end I decided, you know, it just makes it more, um, it's less clunky. It took less scenes, less words. And it, um, it just seemed right that Hoshi got the idea. She knows his abilities pretty well from their time on Sharu. Um, and tactile, they only experimented a, experienced, experimented a little bit with it, but also they were going through something horribly um, traumatic, especially that the one at the end when he shared cold with her, that he might not have been able to do that at the height of his ability. But if we're thinking that this whole thing with his parents kind of let down his barriers and kind of maybe made the his telepathic abilities kind of stronger. Some of it was Travon because Travon is a therapist or a telepath that he could do something was with Travon. And I wondered if, you know, was it because of Travon that he could share those memories or was is that just something he can do? So... He turned up a tactile as high as it can go, and it worked. So that trauma is not going to get in their way again. Now, is chapter 17 going to be full of them having intercourse? No, it will be implied. I am rather a prude. Um... I have one other story where I wrote a sex scene. It's another whip, so you won't haven't heard it yet. So the first one to be read into this podcast is this. But um, Momentous has a full-on sex scene. And again, it's not as detailed as some smut might be. But it's there. And then it's fairly well implied and hinted at in further chapters. Um, I feel like you don't, um, unless you're writing a romance novel that is, you know, built on smut, um, and you need a bunch of sex scenes to, you know, make your readers feel a certain way, um, you don't need to describe every one of them. Um, it's kind of like an alien us. I thought that, you know, looking back at this story that I had written, you know, quite some time ago, that it was very um, graphic, all those surgeries. And then when I read it in this podcast, I realized, no, only one of them was graphic. And the rest, we didn't have to hit them near as hard, spend as much time in the detail of it, because we already knew, we already felt it from the first so when we said it was the same in the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, we, we, could, we could fill in that information. I, it would have been overkill or, you know, it, it, would, it would have been too heavy to describe it in each time. It would have been gratuitous. So that's something in writing. You can have something re- horrible or something very nice repeated many times without having to write them in detail many times. You 
write them out the first time and then you can hint, you can imply, you don't have to keep doing it. Now, if smut is your thing as a writer, go ahead. Smut is not my thing. My thing is Jen. I write Jen stories. I write uh, angst stories. I write trauma stories. I write, um, I wouldn't call them hurt comfort. It's like more like hurt rescue. <laughs> um, hurt comfort is its own kind of trope. Um, but in doing Jen, especially with Philippe, there may be romance within the gin without it being come becoming a romance story so romance stories romance is the main deal it is the main plot will they get together you know what did they do together yeah um gin with romance in it the main plot is still the gin or the angst or the whatever um the plot of Alien Us is these two characters getting vivisected and experimented on, etc. The romance just happens in it. It becomes a strong part of it that helps them survive, but it's not a romance story. And the, you know, Finding Home is about Malcolm's trauma working itself out, especially the previous trauma, the trauma from his family and being adopted by Tripp's family. It is not about Hoshi and his relationship. That's a part of him, so it's there, but that's not the plot. That's the difference. This is not a romance story. It has romance in it. Um, so there's that. There are a lot of romance stories in fanfic. Many people think that if you write fanfic, you must ship people. And ship is short for relationship. And while this is Hoshi Reed, or Reed Hoshi, or Malcolm Hoshi, um, it is mainly Jen. It just happens to have that relationship in it. Um, there's a lot of slut, uh, smut in fanfiction, too. So... <laughs> Again, I try to write stories that are good enough to be those books on the bookshelf. That's what I aim for. And in the sci-fi part of the bookstore, not in the romance and erotica parts of the bookstore. <laughs> um, so my stories, they may have romance in them, especially Philippe's. Um, the other story that does have the sex scene is Momentous, which is Final Fantasy XV. It's a video game, therefore it's Philippe. The only ones I can think might happen where they have some romance in them are the Pieces to a Puzzle short stories, in that I do rather like Bucky Sarah as a thing. He flirted with her. She liked that flirting. So <laughs> I do kind of like that. Will I write the whole relationship? I don't think so. Um, I don't think my stories will go that far into the future. I do have some ideas and they will be more flirting or more 
relating, <laughs> but um, and Sam has already had to give up on the idea of stopping that flirting. So um, that will be Gabrielle's first, you know, foray into romance, really. All the other stories, you know, Dr. Bashir didn't have a romance. Um, Buck didn't have, well, Buck did have a romance, didn't he, in um, uh, The Journey. But it was just getting started. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, they had known each other for a week. That was an episode of, of The Young Writers. Um, and then she was gone. I wrote her coming back. But, you know, Ike is the one who met her at the uh, at St. Joe and traveled with her. She goes to um, Rock Creek and finds that Buck is in very bad shape. Buck is in a coma and on his spiritual journey. Um that he doesn't know about her. Ike doesn't tell him about her. It's when he, after he chooses life, that he wakes up and he sees her and she says that Ike brought her and he says, Ike brought me too. So that relationship is just hinted at. Also that she wrote um, the letter to Emma for him because he couldn't write um, with his hand broken his wrist broken. So, you know, hints, hints, hints. So Gabrielle has only done hints. Uh, I wrote the scene in Momentous long before I wrote this one. And mainly I stuck to just the overwhelmingness of it. And a, there's very little of the you know, mechanics. So if you did skip that paragraph, you probably didn't need to. There wasn't that much in it. Um, it was more that he felt what she felt and it was overwhelming. So it's not he doesn't, it doesn't describe exactly what she's doing there. It doesn't describe what he does, except for use a towel to clean things up when it happens. Um, the only other thing I really need to say is, once again, there was a superscripted one in part of the text, and that is for the note at the bottom that says, you know, when, when he briefly told Tripp about the drowning by the bullies, Again, summarized from Last Full Measure by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles, Pocket Books, 2006, New York, pages 150 to 154. So, um, very, very brief telling of it. And, um, yeah, so I have to, but I put that, because that's not my story that I created. That was created by the writers of that book. All right, so we are ready for the... finish. I don't know if you call it climactic. Maybe. Maybe it is. Um, I do know that chapter seven is far more up than I usually write. <laughs> I usually say I don't write happy endings, but I do write up. I, you know, the trajectory of the story goes down, 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 and comes up at the end. You can then extrapolate that there's a happier ending. To, you know, <laughs> but I don't write the happy ending. And 
in this one I think I wrote the happy ending so once again Philippe does something Gabrielle does not so um, yeah I hope you you like it and um, I hope you like this whole story and uh, it is an end to this series if you look on an archive of our own you can have series you can join stories together and this is called Alien Us and Finding Home, I believe. It's, that's exactly what it is, because one is a sequel to the other. They are joined. There will be no third story. It ends here. I don't have any more worthy imaginings of Malcolm and Hoshi together and their life together. Um, one other thing that it does, and I would say that this is, again... Philip, Philippe, not Gabrielle. Gabrielle tries to take her stories and step out of canon and step back into canon, like bookends. Like I take the character and go this way with him, and I do all this, but we can slide him right back into canon where he was, and it's still believable. This is taking a detour from canon. All right, so. I've been hinting at their decision, um, so I think you can see where that's going. It will be stated in the next chapter. And then it will definitely be diverging from canon. So, I'll leave it at that. If you would like to leave me a message, let me know what you think. You can email me at inhildi at gmail.com. That's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. Or you can toot me at on uh, Mastodon at inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. So, until tomorrow when we finish it.